We're in Acts chapter 17. Uh, I'm going to read out of the message today. We've been preaching through Acts, as most of you know, and, um, and we're going to continue. So the missionary journey continues, and, uh, and we are headed into Thessalonica. So here we go. They took the road south through Amphipolis and Apollonia to Thessalonica, where there was a community of Jews. And Paul went to their meeting place, as he usually did when he came to a town, And for three Sabbaths running, he preached to them from the scriptures. He opened up the texts so they understood what they'd been reading all their lives, that the Messiah absolutely had to be put to death and raised from the dead. There were no other options. And that this Jesus I'm introducing you to is that Messiah. Some of them were won over and joined ranks with Paul and Silas. Among them, a great many God-fearing Greeks and a considerable number of women from the aristocracy. But the hardline Jews became furious over the conversions, and mad with jealousy, they rounded up a bunch of brawlers off the street and soon had an ugly mob terrorizing the city as they hunted down Paul and Silas. They broke into Jason's house, thinking that Paul and Silas were there, and when they couldn't find them, they collared Jason and his friends instead and dragged them before the city fathers, yelling hysterically, these people are out to destroy the world. And now they've shown up on our doorstep, attacking everything we hold dear. And Jason is hiding them, these traitors and turncoats who say that Jesus is king and that Caesar is nothing. The city fathers and the crowd of people were totally alarmed by what they heard. And they made Jason and his friends post heavy bail And they let them go while they investigated the charges. Pretty action-packed mission trip going on. They show up, preach the gospel. They're sharing it with some of the Jews, some of the Greeks, and the the leading women get saved. So it's like, woo, thank you, Jesus. But then the the hardcore um, Jews, Jews that were still adhering to Judaism minus Jesus are freaking out. So they stir up all this trouble, as you know. And then they post their hosts, have to go post bail in order to be released that they won't disturb the peace of, of, of the city. So this is pretty, pretty incredible action going on. But the first thing I want to make a point of here, guys, is this is our story, right? We are here as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus Christ has come, and we get to share that with everyone. Amen? It's a pretty good job. It's pretty awesome. However, you notice here that not everyone is ready to receive the gospel of the kingdom. Not everyone is ready to hear the gospel of the kingdom. In fact, I will just encourage you with these words. Uh, Statistically, at this point, people need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ 20 times before they usually turn to the Lord. I'm not saying there's an exception to that because there are exceptions. I'm sorry. I'm not saying there aren't exceptions to that. There are exceptions. However, on average, most people encounter the gospel 20 times before they decide to surrender to Jesus Christ. So you and I need to remember, just as Paul and Silas are are finding, is some people immediately responded to the gospel, which was amazing, and other people were like, we want to throw you in jail. We like what we have going on. You're threatening our position or whatever else, and we're completely against you. In fact, to the point that they stirred up their city leaders against them preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the point. Listen, our job is to share the good news with everyone that we see. 
Our job is to have an answer for the hope that is within us, just like we see Paul and Silas doing. They're coming and sharing the good news. However, they also recognize there will be those that are not ready to receive it. And so what do you do? You move on to the next person who's ready to receive it. And you don't get discouraged. You don't have to get super introspective. You just say, okay, Jesus, I think that person's not quite ready. But man, hopefully, maybe that was the 19th time. And maybe the next person will be number 20, but I've done my job. I'll keep praying and be sensitive, and I move on to others to share good news. Can you receive that? All right. So we just keep on keeping on. So where do they keep on to? They keep on to Berea. Uh, verse 10. That night, under cover of darkness, their friends got Paul and Silas out of town as fast as they could. They sent them to Berea where they again met with the Jewish community. So this was, the, this was Paul's norm, was he would start with the Jews, and then he would move to the Gentiles. So he would come and honor the Jews with the gospel. First, when he came to a new place, he was an apostle to the Gentiles, but he would begin by honoring the Jews because we know that the Jews were given the promises, the law and the prophets, and so he would come and preach the gospel to them. So that's pretty fantastic. So he does that. They were treated a lot better there in Thessalonica. The Jews received Paul's message with enthusiasm, and they met with him daily, examining the scriptures to see if they supported what he said. A lot of them became believers, including many Greeks who were prominent in the community, women and men of influence. But it wasn't long before reports got back to the Thessalonian hardline Jews that Paul was at it again, preaching the word of God, this time in Berea. They lost no time responding, and they created a mob scene there too. With the help of his friends, Paul gave them the slip, caught a boat, and put out to sea. Silas and Timothy stayed behind, and the men who helped Paul escape got him as far as Athens and left him there. Paul sent word back with them to Silas and Timothy, come as quickly as you can. I want to draw your attention to this incredible space. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, be a good Berean? Anybody raise your hand? You got to be a good Berean. Come on. I got Tommy. I got two over here. Three, four, five. Five of you. Well, I get to introduce the rest of you to what, that, what in the business that means. And what that means, it comes from this story that these Bereans, it says that they daily examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. That's what they were doing. They were making sure that this latest philosophy, this latest thought, this latest proclamation was actually scriptural before they believed it. They checked to see if this really wonderful, incredible little short that they had just watched was actually scripturally true. They checked to see if this meme that had moved them to anger was actually true before they did anything. They were good Bereans. They checked to see, how does this apply to us? Are you guys picking up what I'm throwing down here? Because I'm laying it on pretty thick. They checked to see if that thought that occurred to them, that you go, my, this would be awesome if it's true. I really want to go to there was actually scripturally true before they acted upon it. That's a say law for us, isn't it? They checked to see if it was true before they acted upon it, not if it felt right, not if it's what they wanted to believe, not if it was popular, not if it was trending, not if it was now the only lawful way forward. No, 
if it was actually true according to the scriptures. What's the point for us? How many of you will commit with me to be a good Berean? Come on. We have got to be daily looking at the scriptures. Otherwise, we will be very easily led astray when new winds of doctrines, new teachings, new philosophical understandings, new, 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 new happens. It will always happen. Our job is to go to the scriptures daily and know them so that we can then let the scriptures judge us. Amen? Amen. And judge every new doctrine that comes. So these good Bereans... They checked it out, and they're like, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, and many of them believed. So hallelujah. Meanwhile, Paul is in Athens. Verse 16. The longer Paul waited in Athens for Silas and Timothy, the angrier he got. All those idols. The city was a junkyard of idols. This, of course, is the message um, in, uh, in the uh, ESV it says that while Paul was there, he was grieved in his spirit over all of the idols that he saw in the city. In fact, there's a, uh, there's a great little comment here um, uh, that uh, a certain, um, certain well-known, oh, hang on, sorry, um, hold on here. Ah, Petronius, who was a contemporary writer in Nero's court at that time, actually wrote, you know, satirically, over Athens that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. Because <laughs> they had so many idols. Like you're, It'd be easier to find a god than a particular person. <laughs> so they were very, they were into idols. They loved them some idols. And so Paul is stirred up in his spirit. And, and his, he's looking around, just to finish this, uh, this great little uh, excerpt from a commentary. The first impression, uh, let's see, he was stirred in his spirit the first impression which the masterpieces of man's taste for art left on the mind of St. Paul was a revolting one. Since all this majesty and beauty had placed itself between man and his creator and bound him the faster to his gods who were not God. So this idea that this beautiful, because how many of you guys know, right? Idols are like fantastic art. I mean, these are, these are the artisans of the day are taking and creating these idols that are beautiful. They're creating beautiful art. And that art, that idol is actually between people and God. Instead of them being able to connect to God, they're connecting to an idol. And Paul is just grieved in his spirit to see this idolatry. Obviously, it's not just the beauty, but the beauty of this idea, the beauty of this idol is getting between them and God. He's grieved. And so he, so he, he discusses it with the Jews. Uh, we're in verse... Uh, um, 17 now. He discussed it with the Jews and the other like-minded people at their meeting place. And every day he went out on the streets and he talked with anyone who happened along. He got to know some of the Epicurean and Stoic intellectuals pretty well through these conversations. Some of them dismissed him with sarcasm. What an airhead. Uh, one of the words they said is, what is, this, what is this babbler? What does he have to say? In ESV it says that. And that word babbler is actually someone who picks up little seeds or little tidbits. They don't actually have the whole thing, but they have little pieces, little tidbits of philosophies, and they try to put them together in like an ignorant way. So they were accusing him of being this person that was taking little tidbits from different philosophies and putting them together without understanding. So he says, they say, what in, this is, uh, you know, Peterson says, what an airhead. But others listening to him go on about Jesus and the resurrection were intrigued. That's a new slant on the gods. Tell us more. 
These people got together and asked him to, take a, to make a public presentation over at Areopagus, Areopagus, Areopostal, Aeropostal. Anyway, they went there and uh, where things were a little quieter and they said, this is a new one on us. We've never heard anything quite like it. Where'd you come up with this anyway? Explain it so we can understand. Downtown Athens was a great place for gossip. There were always people hanging around, natives and tourists alike, waiting for the latest tidbit on just about anything. I want to share a couple of thoughts here uh, that we see. He made friends with the Epicureans and the Stoics. Who were these people? Who were these leading thinkers at that time, intellectuals? Well, let me tell you right now. The Epicureans, they were a well-known school of atheistic materialists who taught that pleasure was the chief end of human existence, a principle which the more rational interpreted in a refined sense, and while the sensual explained it in its coarser meaning. So what are we talking about here? That the chief end of man is his own happiness, like pleasure, you know, where nothing else exists, so your happiness is the most important thing, and so you need to exercise whatever you need to do in order to be happy. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, nothing new under the sun, right? So this is the teachings of the, of the Epicureans. And the other ones that he taught, that he hung out with were the Stoics, a celebrated school of severe and lofty pantheists whose principle was that the universe was under the law of an iron necessity, the spirit of which was what is called the deity, and that a passionless conformity of the human will to this law, unmoved by all external circumstances and changes, is the perfection of virtue. That's kind of interesting, right? So it's sort of like Spock, right? Star Trek. It's just, you know, you just remove, he doesn't have any, you don't need to be getting emotional because everything is already set. So you just accept that the gods have already chosen the way things are going to be. Things are set in a certain motion and you getting all jazzed up about it being really, really good or really, really depressed if things go wrong. What does it matter anyway? Everything is set. So therefore, the virtuous thing that you can do is stop getting excited about everything. You can see that I'm very stoic in the way that I live. And so you can, if you want to know what that looks like, I'm kidding. So, so, so the Stoics were embracing this idea of fate has been set and therefore just, just be calm. The best thing you can do is essentially be content to not be emotional. And you've, you've come into this great virtue. The, the comment here is uh, by Housen is, while, there, while therefore the Stoical was in itself superior to the Epicurean system, both were alike hostile to the gospel. Now listen to this quote. The two enemies it has ever had to contend with, meaning the gospel, are the two ruling principles of the Epicureans and Stoics, pleasure and pride. Pleasure and pride. These are the philosophies that Paul is essentially addressing in that moment. And, you know, we know from the scriptures, right? Lust of the eyes and lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And that's what this is. You've got Stoicism and you've got Epicureanism. And they're, they're, they're presenting, they're trying, to, they're trying to give definition to how we understand life, having not yet encountered the true God. So you can't fault the Stoics or the, or the Epicureans for what they came up with. And in fact, Paul then, he enters into the, the, into the conversation then at that point, though, of what they understand reality to be. So here we go. So Paul took his stand in the open space at the Areopagus, and he laid it out for them. 
It is plain to see that you Athenians take your religion seriously. When I arrived here the other day, I was fascinated with all the shrines I came across. That's a generous statement, isn't it? And then I found one inscribed to the God nobody knows. I'm here to introduce you to this God so you can worship intelligently and know who you're dealing with. The God who made the world and everything in it, this master of sky and land, doesn't live in custom-made shrines or need the human race to run errands for him as if he couldn't take care of himself. He makes the creatures. The creatures don't make him. Starting from scratch, he made the entire human race and made the, her the earth hospitable with plenty of time and space for living so we could seek after God and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. He doesn't play hide and seek with us. He's not remote. He's near. We live and move in him. We can't get away from him. One of your poets said it well, we are the God created. Well, if we are the God created, it doesn't make a lot of sense to think we could hire a sculptor to chisel a God out of stone for us, does it? God overlooks it as long as you don't know any better. But that time has passed. The unknown is now known. And he's calling for a radical life change. He has set a day when the entire human race will be judged and everything set right. Somebody say amen. amen. Woo, that's going to be nice. And he has already appointed the judge, confirming him before everyone by raising him from the dead. At the phrase raising him from the dead, the listeners split. Some laughed at him and walked off making jokes. And others said, let's do this again. We want to hear more. But that was it for the day. And Paul left. There were still others, it turned out, who were convinced then and there and stuck with Paul. Among them, uh, Dionysius and Aero... I should have, like, looked these up. Go ahead, Jason. What is it? Aeropagite. Oh, there we go. Give that man a lollipop. Areopagite. <laughs> and a woman named Damaris, who was the inventor of the demerit system. I'm just kidding. Okay. That was so dumb, but I just, I, 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 I said the thing as I thought it. Now I'm saying more things. Stop. Okay. So, so it's, here's, here's Paul, and he's addressing them right where they are. And he actually begins to address the very issues of the Stoics and the Epicureans. And he's saying, look, here's how you understood it. But now I'm telling you, God can be known. So for the Stoics, this distant deity that he's, he's, he's actually confronting that, that this, this deity is not distant. He's actually near. And should you reach for him, you'll find him. He's not hiding. For the Epicureans, he's saying there is actually a God. But he says to both of them, he says, listen. Now, this is, this is very cool. He says, God overlooks it as long as you don't know any better. But that time has passed. The unknown is now known. And he's calling for a radical life change. He has set a time a day when the entire human race will be judged and everything set right. And he has appointed the judge, confirming him before you by raising him from the dead. This is amazing news that we are carrying the same message right now. Now, I want you to think about a couple things. I'm going to kind of start at the end and work backwards. But think, first of all, the judge. Isn't it interesting that the father is not the judge? but that Jesus Christ is the judge? And who is Jesus Christ? What was his qualification that Paul just pointed out? He said, Jesus Christ is going to judge every single one of us. 
And the way that we know that he is the Messiah is because he rose from the dead. Think about what this means. Jesus was the suffering servant who lived as a human, fully human. He understands every temptation that we face, every situation that we've gone through. He has been tempted in every way just like us, yet without sin, and he has even died as we will all die, yet he died an unjust murder on a cross on our behalf and for the behalf of all mankind. He lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died so that we now, if we will accept what he's done, can live the life that he lives forever. Jesus Christ, the one who suffered and understands literally everything about what it's like to not just know about being a human, he's been a human. Are you with me? And he's going to be the judge. God is so brilliant. Now, if the father was going to be the judge, then Satan and all of his vain philosophers would potentially have a point to say, you don't actually know what it's like to be a human. So how dare you judge your creation when you yourself don't really understand what it's like to have been created? You don't understand what it's like to have to walk on this earth and deal with what we've dealt with. You want us to serve you and then you're going to judge us? That's an unjust measure. But God in his brilliance, do you see what he's done? Jesus Christ came and knows exactly what we've been through. And the father says, I'm not going to judge you. Jesus is going to judge you. Man, I got to tell you, if I've got to face a judge... I'm sure glad it's going to be Jesus. Are you guys with me? Wow. Wow. And what's the point of Jesus judging? What is the point of Jesus judging? Because there really are those who are not going to accept Jesus, our Messiah. And he, and he will let them reject him. Why? Because of his great love. He's like, I'm not going to force you to love me. If you don't want to love me, if you don't want this kingdom, if you don't want to live forever with me, I am not going to make you do that. And I will say to you, in that day, your will be done. It will be with sadness, but, you know, as C.S. Lewis says, in that day when we stand before him, either we will, with great gratitude, look upon him and say, Lord, your will be done and enter into his glory, or he with sadness will look at us and say, your will be done, and allow us to go into death. Whew. He's good, isn't he? He's good. So he confronts then these, these idols of that day, and he says, now there will be a judge who you will answer to for what you choose now that you are no longer ignorant. You notice he says that. He says, there was a time where God overlooked it as long as you didn't know any better, but that time is past because the unknown is now known and he is calling for a radical life change. He has set a day when the entire human race will be judged and everything set right. Why? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Once you know that Jesus Christ has, been, has risen from the dead, once you know this and you now know this, then you are now responsible for you, what you're going to do 
with your choice over that. I will either accept that Jesus Christ is the Son of God given to save all of mankind and accept the fact that I am actually hopeless without a Savior, or I will reject him and continue to believe that I don't need a Savior, which is what the Stoics believed. It's already there. All I've got to do is do constant self-improvement until I'm no longer emotionally moved by the good or the bad in this life. It's the ultimate self-help program. Buddhism mirrors this quite well. It's kind of the same basic principle as letting go, right, of all your attachments so that you can attain nirvana, essentially, right? You, you, you're, you're attaining oneness with the universe by disconnecting from all of these material things, right? What is it, though? It's constant self-help where you don't need a savior. You just keep aspiring and aspiring and attaining and attaining, but it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need a savior, guys. Do you need a savior? We need a savior. And he's here saying, this won't work for you. You must have a savior, and you actually will be judged by what you're going to do with Jesus. Will you accept him? Will you submit to him? Will you accept the love of God which is shown through Jesus Christ? And what's the proof of Jesus' love? That he died for you and he now lives for you if you will submit your life to him. And at that point, we have to say to ourselves, man, I'd be crazy not to take that deal. Like nobody loves me like that. you telling me he loved me while I was his enemy? Yes, that's too good to be true. Well, this is the only instance where it is. Jesus is the only too good to be true that's actually true. He's so good, he's true. Feels sacrilegious to say what I just said a minute ago. But you guys are with me, right? Secondarily, so with that, I would say, with, this, with the stoic side of it is pride. It's this idea that we can save ourselves. with Just give us enough time, just give us enough work, and, and we will evolve into a better person all on our own, right? Just add more time. It's the great macroevolutionary philosophical thought. Just give me more time. Well, you don't have more time. You get probably about 80 years. And if you reach for him, you will find him if you so desire. He's not hiding. But we get to extend the gospel of the kingdom. Amen? And then you have pleasure. Woo, you guys, we swim in this water. We swim in this water. We live in such a beautiful and rich, wonderful moment and nation. Even in the middle of going into a recession, we're still, we're still sitting pretty, right? I mean, it's like, for me, I'm like, oh, man, I'm out of my favorite sparkling drink. I'm going to have to get my second favorite sparkling drink, of which I have plenty. You know, we, we do. We live in, in pleasure. And we swim in the philosophy, really, of the Epicureans here, right? I mean, the great travesty of our time is to deny anyone their happiness, right? You're, you, you live your truth, baby. And so we're here preaching the gospel in the face of that same kind of thought, and that's why we have to be good Bereans, because we have to check and say, Lord, is what's being taught, is what I'm seeing in story after story after story as I watch television or as I read books or as I watch these short films or as I listen to this lecture in my college or in my school, is it actually true? Does it tickle my ears? Does it sound good? Wait, I can have pleasure and whatever pleasure I want is right because pleasure is the chief end. My happiness is the chief end of man. Golly, I hope that's true because I want what I want. Are you guys with me? But we have to go to the scriptures and say, Lord, is this true though? Am I allowed to do that? Is that truly what you've brought in your kingdom? 
Because how many of you know that the gospel, a good summary of the gospel of the kingdom is that the chief end of man, using the Westminster um, Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him always, right? To love God with all your heart, strength, and mind and love your neighbor as much as Jesus loves them is the chief end of man. Are you guys with me? Which means denying yourself pleasure sometimes. It means like, well, in the gospel of the kingdom, it says, if you would save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. The gospel of the kingdom says that you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. What's a cross for? It's for stuff to die on, like self-will and selfishness. <laughs> it means that you actually deny yourself certain pleasures because you know that only in Christ and only at the judgment when he sets all things right will certain things come to pass where in that day all all things are judged righteously by God. And then together we receive the reward with Jesus. But until that day, there will be things where you and I will actually suffer for the name of Jesus, which flies in the face of this idea of my happiness is the most important thing. And anyone who gets in the way of my happiness through words or deeds or whatever is toxic for me now. They're actually anathema. And I'm not allowed to even be around that negative person because they dared to challenge my happiness. And I got to tell you, that's the doctrine of the Epicureans, which they learned. They didn't know it, but it's called doctrines of demons. It's the enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, who wants to see us slowly and in an undisturbed way, as Screwtape Letters says, march in an undisturbed, slow walk into the arms of our Father, and him meaning Satan, having been undisturbed, walking away from God into the arms of the enemy, into hell. That's what Satan wants. You know what? Pleasure being the chief end of man is a fantastic way to get us there, isn't it? And so therefore, how do, we, how do we hear the gospel? How do we keep ourselves from that? Now, most of you here are probably saying, well, I don't believe any of that stuff, so I don't know why we're going so long on this, Joshua. Well, the reason why is because the water that we swim in, and whoever just laughed, I want to talk to you after church. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> The water that we swim in is primarily colored by this thought. And so if we're measuring ourselves by the culture right now, it's a pretty low bar. So you might, not, you might be like, well, yeah, I'm not like those guys. Yeah, okay, well, that means literally almost nothing. <laughs> You're going to have to be a good Berean and go to the scriptures and say, Lord, what do your scriptures say about this. The scripture is for, it's for teaching, right? It's for correction. It's for encouragement. We have to let the scriptures correct us and teach us and actually look and not just cherry pick one scripture, right? I mean, my favorite when I would do that is Jesus wept. Lord, if you don't want me to do this, and would it make you weep? Well, the scripture says Jesus wept. That proves that I can do this. Lord, me not getting my way in this, would it make you weep? Well, the scripture says Jesus wept. You guys are with me, right? Cherry picking. Okay, that didn't work very well. It was dumb, and I take it back, and I repent for it. Don't take one scripture. It's all of the scriptures held together that direct us to understand the will of God of how we walk. And we have to be a good Berean to say, is this actually okay for me to do as I move forward? 
Not how am I doing in relationship to what the world thinks? How do I feel about that? It doesn't matter how you feel about that. You matter to God, but how you feel about that does not matter in whether or not it's true. It's what God has to say about it that makes it true. Do you, do you catch that? You and I matter to the Lord, but how we feel about truth is immaterial on whether or not it's true. It's what the scriptures have to say about it. So we're going to be good Bereans. Amen? And so Paul continues. We're going we're to pick back up next week and see more of this missionary journey. But this morning, I just wanted to point out these things because I felt like, boy, this is like the front page newspaper for where we're living right now. Are you guys encouraged? All right, well, stand up, you good Bereans. I want to pray over you. And, uh, and we're going to go out and we're going to celebrate uh, tonight and tomorrow Independence Day. Amen? All right. Um, thank you, Jesus. Lord, I want to thank you so much for your word. God, I want to ask that you would help us, Lord, to be good Bereans. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would, that we would be confronted by your Holy Spirit in every place where there's an idol between us and you. Lord, I pray that as we as good Bereans open up the scriptures, Holy Spirit, it says that you're our teacher and you'll teach us all things and that you're the one that teaches us about the scriptures. So I pray, Lord, help us as we are being good Bereans. Lord, would you pierce to our hearts and show us the places where we may be worshiping the doctrines of idols, Lord, whether it's the stoicism or whether it's the worship of pleasure. And, 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 the, and taking those things out of context, whatever it is, Lord, let your scriptures inform us as to what is true, what is right, what is good, what is your love actually look like according to your words in scripture. And Father, we ask that as you continue this great work in us, we together, we together would come into the maturity of Jesus Christ even as you ask that we would pray and even as you desire. Let us grow together. And lastly, Father, I thank you for this incredible body or part of your body, Christ Center. And I ask for every saint, Lord, today to be filled again with your Holy Spirit. Father, to be refreshed and renewed in their love for you, in their love for one another, in their love for their enemies, and in their mission as we continue to teach and preach and serve the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you agree, then say amen.